if you have the ability to bring somebody with you to a healthcare visit, that is ideal. Not just because there's a second set of eyes and ears, but because in a time of crisis, we can kind of get overwhelmed by the volume of information or the situation. And if that person is not available, bring a list of questions. Show the caregiver, I have a list of seven questions. I'm not leaving until I answer these. And so these little interventions are something that we as individuals can do as we engage in healthcare, because we're basically at that point writing the story as we go, because if we don't, they will write it for us. Leadership Story Talks, where we discuss the practices that engage, motivate, develop, retain, and attract people to businesses. We'll give you principles and tools based on real-world stories to leverage listening and storytelling to become a better leader and management professional. Leadership Story Talks is produced by Narrative, a company that focuses on personal storytelling for business. Welcome to Leadership Story Talks. I'm Jerome DeRoy, CEO of Narrative. I'm Julian Ryan, and I'm happy to be here. Hey. Uh, well, before we move on to introducing our guest, uh, I want to remind our listeners to subscribe to the podcast, wherever you find podcasts, and uh, leave a review. And then check out our YouTube channel as well. Uh, you'll you'll see us as multidimensional beings there. Um, and that'll all be in the episode's notes, uh, as well as go to narrative.com slash podcast, where you can find all of our previous episodes. We also have a workshop coming up, coming, coming up in February called Leading with Story. Uh, it's all about how you can create a compelling story that expresses your vision, your values. And that's going to start on February 15. It's going to be four 60-minute sessions. Uh, you can go to narrative.com slash resources to enroll and learn more about it. So now, without further ado, I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Der Derek McCracken, uh, who's a New York-based health equity activist who received his core narrative education and training through Columbia University's Narrative Medicine program. He teaches narrative medicine pedagogy and applied writing for Columbia School of Professional Studies, serves on the board of Say Ah, which is a health literacy, literacy nonprofit agency. And he's also a member of the Clear Health Communications Task Force at Intellis Worldwide, which is a leading global organization for healthcare market researchers. This year, he'll be part of the launch team for Narrative Mindworks, a group whose mission is to help narrative-based practitioners integrate their expertise into existing corporate and healthcare structures, as well as support emerging narrative practices. I'm absolutely delighted to have you on the show, Derek. Welcome. Thank you, Jerome and Julianne. I am very excited to be here as somebody who has been a client of narrative in the past. It's nice to be part of, of the team today, providing some background. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I thought we could maybe start out with you telling us a little bit about your journey, uh, which I know started in the corporate world, to where you are now as a, as a health equity activist. Thank you. So I would consider this sort of chapter three in my professional development. So my first job out of undergraduate where I studied creative writing was intended to be a temp job at H&R Block's world headquarters. However, I dug customer service so much, I just enjoyed hearing people's stories, basically helped them solve problems, and I stayed there five years. So that really honed my ability to take in an audible story because I did not see the people to whom I was speaking, but I got to hear every detail of, of their need at hand. 
that was my day job. And then at night I was going to grad school and I got a master's degree in creative writing. And at that point, I was sort of at a crossroads of what do I do with this English degree? And I had applied to homework once before and got a quick rejection letter. Uh, but I really saw that as an invitation to try harder. So when I did apply the second time after a rigorous six month application process, I was hired and I worked there for almost 18 years. And as a writer, an editor, uh, a manager, and most recently as a creative director in the greetings commercialization arm of the business. It was a wonderful 17 year ride. Uh, the economy took yet another downturn and I was part of a downsizing effort that the Hallmark had in 2013. And I found myself at another crossroads. And so at that point, I had to decide, did I want to stick in product development or do something else? And I, as the youngest of eight children, had seen one after the other uh, patriarchs and matriarchs within our family um, change their health condition or, or pass away. And it made me sort of reorient myself and how I was relating to the world. Hmm. I did some research and I decided that it was time to make a big leap of faith. And I found the narrative medicine program at Columbia University. And so uh, I left a city in the Midwest of about 30,000 and went into a city with 8 million people. And I've been here since and enjoying it every day. Mm, wow. That's amazing. Um, you know, the, the, the narrative medicine program is, is something that, um, uh, I'm obviously familiar with, and that's how we, it's in that context that we met. Um, and, and I know that the, and, you know, the narrative founders were, were uh, teaching at one point there too. And I've always been fascinated by, um, the, I, I guess I'll, for lack of a better term, uh, I, I know that it's always kind of been the same in terms of what it teaches, but the, uh, the, the, people that seem to gravitate um, to narrative medicine, um, that seems to have evolved over the years. And um, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the appeal that you saw with, the, with for yourself with the narrative medicine program, because I think from my experience, a lot of people think, oh, narrative medicine program, it's for doctors. Uh, and essentially, I remember people at the beginning talking about it as Essentially, we're teaching bedside manners, you know, <laughs> and so, um, and I know that you're asking a, this because that's right. And I know that there's a, a part of that that's true. There's a modicum of truth to that. But I wonder for someone with your background, what was it about the narrative medicine program that interested you? Um, and, and what was sort of the area of focus for you? Thank you for that question. It comes up a lot and it needs some ongoing translation on a regular basis. So when I had first moved to New York, and just working as a freelance business consultant, I was actually on site at a hospital that had just undergone a merger. And although they hired me to talk about strategic thinking and development, it became very apparent that what they didn't need was training. They needed some sort of affiliation between the two separate groups into one. And as a non-clinician, that appealed to me because I thought, you know, this need really transcends medical knowledge it's, it's human connection. Mm -hmm. And so when I looked at the narrative medicine program at Columbia, it was not relegated to clinicians or just future clinicians. It's people who are interested in narrative, building relationships. And many of us do work in hospitals or do onsite work in, in the healthcare realm, but it's the narrative piece that I thought I can really make a difference. 
Now, in my classes, I sat next to med students. I sat next to doctors who were taking a gap year in their studies. And it was that that combination of disciplines that I think that gives narrative medicine its strength. But if people get hung up on medicine, I focus on the narrative. If they get hung up on the narrative, I focus on the medicine. So there's the balance. And and so from there, um, there's another, I think, area that deserves uh, some definition, which is the idea of health equity and, and health literacy. Um, you know, a, a lot of people put this under the umbrella of DEI and, um, uh, or I know there's, there's more letters to it now, but I'll, I'll keep it at that for now. Um, but, but what is your kind of view? And again, going from the, the narrative medicine program and applying that teaching to that particular, um, area you talked about and now health equity and health literacy, what's been that evolution for you and, and why the focus on those areas? So narrative medicine as a discipline, as a field, and as a practice is still very vast. And so thankfully, mm -hmm. again, with my background in English and writing and editing, the literacy piece became very natural to me. And it can also seem reductive because I don't want to convey that health literacy is just the ability to read or write and understand health information. It's the ability to have access to that information and to take the necessary steps to improve one's health at the individual level. So there's also organizational health literacy, which does not put the onus of understanding or application on the individual, but is what are the organizations doing to provide access, to provide these translation services, to provide this overall support for individuals, groups, and members of uh, a city or uh, a business or a, a larger part of the population. The, the destination, this is the best metaphor I can come up with, is his health equity, that everyone has access to the best healthcare information, products and services at the time that they need it. I see the, the path to health equity as health literacy, and I see narrative medicine as one of those stepping stones. And so I can do some pedagogical work in narrative medicine at the same time that I'm learning more about uh, health literacy on the way to health equity. Now, it's an aspirational goal, mm -hmm. and it transcends what's in New York. It transcends what's in the United States. It's, it's a global issue, and I think that's why when I attend webinars about people with new strategies of how to approach this problem, scoping is, is complex, but that's not an excuse not to do it. Mm. Could, could you give an example of, and understanding that this is multidimensional and it's vast to like where this is worked, maybe something that you were connected to that shows what, how you use this, these skills and what the result was and how it improved the situation for either the clients or the, the organizational structure? Sure. So something that comes to mind, uh, SEA is a health literacy agency that's based in New York, and it's very grassroots, meaning that we go to, let's say, the SAGE Center for Elderly LGBTQ Adults, and we'll do a training session on basic health literacy. And once we feel like they've got to a point of some of the core concepts, 
then we engage in a little bit of role play. And so one of us may portray the physician and they portray the patient and we have a conversation. And there's a very specific technique called teach back where mm -hmm. I, as a clinician, would share some information and then I would ask the patient to repeat back to me what they understood about what I just said. And then we gain clarity. And this is this ongoing learning loop of presentation, affirmation, and repetition until both parties come to a place of understanding. Is it always agreement? No. Is it consensus? Maybe not. And I, I once shouted a physician who said to a patient, oh, I see on your chart that you've stopped smoking. That's great. And he said, yeah, I'm very, I'm very proud. And she said, well, when did you stop? I said, oh, about two minutes before I came into this appointment. And so again, keeping a sense of optimism, a sense of humor, and a sense of reality is paramount to all of this. <laughs> so using yeah. a very traditional call and response method of uh, gaining information and uh, being patient. Um, it, it also made me think a few minutes ago when you you started your, your beginning part of your career, how much those skills have played forward in here because you showed about how you trained your ear, you're listening on the phone and really created identity about somebody. And that is um, a very important skill that shows up that auditory to hear the notes in the voice, to hear the pauses, the beats, when somebody's sharing something, I think it, it presents something in, in one of the work you were doing. Well, and I'll use a fictitious name, but I'll never forget the day I got a call from uh, a disgruntled client and again, for being in the Midwest, I had not traveled too far west or east. And when this person said, this is Rose Dabrowski, and this is my tale of woe. Like I fell in love with her over the phone. I thought, I am here for you, Rose. I'm here to help solve your problem. And so, you know, fast forward to Hallmark, I enjoy the product development piece of the work very much. But the sensitivity around emotional spaces came to light when we'd visit people in their homes and see how they connected. I didn't realize that people had multiple Christmas trees, that they switched out dishes during the holidays. And I would see a row of sympathy cards on a mantle. And there was a story behind every card. We just had to take a little bit of time to create the space to receive the story. So in narrative medicine, I try to remind people that although they may not have as much time as they wish with their caregiver, they can find ways to use that time more effectively. For example, bring somebody with you. If you have the ability to bring somebody with you to a healthcare visit, that is ideal. Not just because they're a second set of eyes and ears, but because in a time of crisis, we can kind of get overwhelmed by the volume of information or the situation. Sure. And if that person is not available, bring a list of questions. Show the caregiver I have a list of seven questions. I'm not leaving until I answer these. And so these little interventions are something that we as individuals can do as we engage in healthcare, because we're basically at that point writing the story as we go, because if we don't, they will write it for us. The The way that I, I see this is that, um, or the way that you're describing things right now, you know, it, it's very, um, I can picture it and and I can even relate to it because I think that's the one thing, well, maybe not the only thing, but certainly one of the things that we all have in common is our health. And at some point we're, you know, we're going to have to go to the, 
doctors and, and perhaps um, something not so pleasant is going to come back our way. And so, and I remember very well, um, you know, that situation you just talked about, bring somebody with you. Uh, my sister about 10, 10, a little over 10 years ago now had, had uh, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and, you know, it, it was obviously uh, a shock and, and, and then after the shock of it, you realize that, you know, a lot of people go through this um, and many more than perhaps you even thought. And then you find out, at least in our case, um, it was like, oh yeah, I remember our grandmother had this. And what was that like for her? And of course she had passed, but my mother was able to relay um, that experience. And of course it was a, it was an experience of recovery in that case. And so that kind of bolstered my sister a little bit. And then I remember every. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be in the same city as my sister. And so we were able to organize ourselves, uh, you know, so that I could be there every time. And if I wasn't, I remember my brother came in from out of town, my mom came out, you know, so all of these people kind of gather in these times. And, but that was the one thing that my sister absolutely wanted. And she came up with that idea because we hadn't gone through this of saying, I need someone to go with me to all these doctor's appointments. I think maybe she had gone to one and she, cause she was like, it went one year out the other. I was so emotional. I couldn't actually take in the information. Uh, even taking notes wasn't helping me. I needed somebody to be there. And so from then on, you know, that was her advocating for herself and saying what she needed. But I would imagine that there's a lot of people who don't necessarily have that wherewithal, even in that moment of saying, oh my gosh, I need, I'm gonna need some support here. Uh, and I wonder if in your line of work, Derek, those are the kinds of strategies that you um, sort of advocate for um, and, you know, that maybe these things aren't necessarily what I'm talking about now isn't something that people think about right away. They have to be sort of educated around these things. Well, and you bring up a very good point in the narrative uh, describing your sister's situation. She may have a good day and a bad day where she doesn't feel like advocating. Maybe she just mm -hmm. wants to withdraw but then she'll regain some strength uh, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and is ready to re-engage. So I don't want to project that this is a label that we can see somebody, they are an advocate. It, it's very subjective depending on many barriers to do with health literacy. But um, I'm glad that you brought up the word advocate because at Mount Sinai Hospital, I do some advocacy work for somebody who's been admitted after uh, an assault. And they get support from a physician, a social worker, probably a nurse on call. There's a lot of technical staff present, but what was missing was just a, a peer advocate, somebody who could just be there with them. And so Mount Sinai has developed a program where once they've gone through the upfront conversations and gotten the medical situation under control, an advocate will be present and I'll ask you a few questions. Uh, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you cold? So we build almost like this container of support. And I'll share one very uh, vivid memory. So I was with uh, a person who had been there for six hours. She was exhausted. Her bag was packed. She was just waiting for transportation home. Um, English was not her primary language. And so I had an interpreter during the early phase of our engagement. But later on, I was using Google Translate and I thought, what might she need? So I just texted and figured out how to say, how do you like to relax? And she said, with music. 
And I said, aha, what kind of music? She likes guitar music. So I just loaded up a guitar playlist, kind of dimmed the lights, and it was basically like the narrative lullaby. And she fell asleep, and then she at least got some rest. So I think it's those little mm -hmm. moments of connection. Didn't really take a whole lot of time, but I had to approach it from a place of humility and ask for her to share with me what would be useful versus me assuming anything and just leaving the room. She did not want to be alone. It was just a matter of figuring out what did not alone mean to her and music was the, the path. Mm, amazing. Um, one, one of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about is, you know, in healthcare, um, and we have this experience in, in common because we worked on such a project, but in healthcare, there's a lot of uh, intermediaries and, and there are many sort of, you know, agencies or, or uh, contractors, et cetera, that that have to write material, either for um, you know instructions on how to take how to take medicine or uh, whatever it might be instructions for something and um, and there's a lot of these um, and I know that from our experience you know we we were working on a project with a creative agency in particular um, but I wonder I thought it might be interesting for our listeners to kind of understand that aspect of things too is that you know. Because one of the things that I think about is how does everything we're talking about here translate also into other fields that are not in the healthcare world? Um, you know, and just this idea of sitting with someone and finding, making efforts to find a connection with somebody else, that feels to me like something that is universal. Um, and that if you can, you know, figure out that skill that is something that's going to help you in every aspect of your life and every aspect of your career uh, and i know that with all of these intermediaries in the healthcare world where where do you see kind of your role fitting in in helping bridge these gaps uh, because there must be gaps when you're having to deal with a third party to write something about you know something they're not necessarily familiar with or have life experience with so this is where uh, pedagogy plays a part. So the class that I teach uh, about narrative medicine pedagogy is training future practitioners how to run narrative medicine workshops. Mm. And we follow the start with the end in mind process. And what does that look like? If we know who our client group is, let's say it's a group of oncology nurses, as soon as possible, I get together with that group and have a conversation. I don't always include the charge nurse. Maybe it's just the nurses that are on staff because of this power dynamic, but I try to suss out what are the needs at hand? Is it group cohesion? Is it burnout? Is it education? What is it that their, their needs are? And then I start scaling the program to fit their resources. How much time do they have together? Do they prefer to get together before they go onto a shift early in the morning? Or do they want to have a didactic hour over the lunch hour that's more informal? Or do they want to end their day with something? So I gather as much information as I can and sort of develop the, the framework for how we might interact. And I just plan one session at a time. So one, one piece of feedback I would give is it's okay to plan a curriculum, but be flexible. And so if I, if I bring up um, an approach and it really doesn't seem to be landing, 
I try to stop before the session is ending to say, so it's a really quiet session today. Tell me more about that to try to assess, do I need to adapt something else going forward? Or maybe they just got some bad news that morning. You know, it's not uncommon that they're under the weight of a reorganization or some sort of staff situation that I'm not privy to. And I think just being aware of the collective need helps me map things out in a phased approach. Mm, makes sense. Something came to mind when you were talking before about the um, the woman who was the assault victim, um, that even though you have a process and you have a methodology you're using, that it reminds me of what narrative teaches, that every conversation is a fresh performance. And even though we have skill sets we're bringing forward, but to see that person is listening to this for the first time and they are a new audience and that we have to meet them where they are and remind them. And that's why I think that instruction, what narrative does is simple and it's helpful because we go in knowing our stuff and like, no matter what we're doing, we think they're going to get it, but we haven't introduced the topic to them or they're experiencing and they're listening, just like Jerome's sister was hearing medical terminology and information coming at her in waves. And she was still maybe at the first part of the first paragraph of what she heard and thinking about, well, what are the implications? So I think thinking in simple terms and having those prompts is so helpful for a person going in. Uh, and I think you, Julianne and Jerome, both described beautifully these these narratives um, that medical sociologist Arthur Frank would categorize as falling into one of three spaces. And so when we get new information for the first time and it's contrary to what our lived experiences, it can feel very chaotic. So he would label that as a chaotic narrative, chaos narrative. There's too much information, too unfamiliar, too soon. Well, then as we get more information, we start building this future vision of, I was well, I got sick, I think I will be well again. Uh, that's the restitution narrative. It's very hopeful. It's the most mm -hmm. popular Western narrative because it has a happy ending, but that doesn't always fit the bill. And so if somebody has, let's say, a terminal illness or there's just too many unknowns, then they often come to a place of grappling with the reality and this paradox of, well, I have as much information as has been made available to me, but I still don't have the answer. So this third element of the quest narrative is that I'm on this journey. I may not be 100% better ever, but I'm at peace with that. I'm going to make do with what I can. So again, these are just three ways of looking at narratives. And I like them because they at least help me frame them if somebody's having difficulty kind of grappling with the uncertainty of it all. Mm. Yeah. And, and that gets us into the, the topic of narrative, right? Like the use of narratives and the different kinds of narratives that exist and how it goes well beyond. I mean, obviously people who listen to this, uh, to this podcast know this well, but it goes well beyond entertainment or, you know, um, uh, something like that, because it, it actually helps to organize um, our lives in a certain way or to make sense of things that are very, very difficult to make sense of, especially when it concerns our health um, or, or difficult to, to handle in a way or to accept perhaps. And I think that's where those three types of narratives uh, that you mentioned, um, I can see that as being very helpful to people because at least even if you 
even if it's not necessarily the answer you want, um, at least it's something, it's information. And, and you're kind of, I can see how people can move through these different kinds of narratives. Perhaps it's chaos at the beginning, and then we get to some form of restitution. Maybe it's a quest at some point, you know, and it's all kind of flowing. Um, and I think the moment we start to realize or look at our lives as a big narrative, um, it, it's, it can be quite helpful, quite healing. Um, and, and I certainly see that in our work, even in businesses, you know, even if we don't use the, the healing terminology or, or any medical terminology, it, the, all of this, I think the common thing that we're talking about here is connection, human connection. So there's a lot to be, um, there's a lot to get or to benefit from, you know, understanding that, okay, you're, you're a very different person than me on paper, a different background, et cetera, a class, whatever it might be. And yet you have these life experiences that I can relate to. Um, and that caused me to think of my own life experiences and, and it then causes us together to think of our something that we have in common rather than all these things that make us so different. Right. Um, so, so I, th I think I'm, I'll get off my soapbox now. Do you bring this into companies? Are people interested? Like they have wellness days and events and talk about health, but this is a huge thing of how we listen and create a space for our colleagues or just be there for them. I think it would be a really big benefit because people <laughs> walk around, they either avoid or they try to give stories and say, it's going to be better. I have, you know, all these people in my life I can point to, and they're going to be, that's not, you know, they're going to be fine. So how we listen and how we just are respectful, I think would just be a big help to people in their workplace. It absolutely is. And in fact, we often say that the narrative approach helps kind of topple the hierarchy. So earlier when I talked about the hospital, they've gone through a merger. Mm -hmm. And when I would pitch a question to the group, I noticed that everybody would turn and look mm -hmm. to one authoritarian in the room. Sorry, not authoritarian, that was my label. Yeah, Somebody who yeah. was in charge of the group and it became very clear that without him or her in the room, we may be having a difficult or a different discussion. So when I have worked with a high school on the East Coast, we use the narrative approach. I've worked with some nonprofit executives who wanted to bring this to their, their field workers. Starting at the top is not a bad idea, only because it grounds the people who are leading the others into the philosophical underpinnings of our work. And this is a very simple one. So Jerome, when you're talking about how somebody may be different on paper than what they are in person, we look at it this way. So I am not you. I am not Julianne. Julianne is not Jerome. Jerome is not Derek. And the best we can do is to come up with the reasonable facsimile of each other through communication, understanding, and experience. And so if a team has worked together for let's say three years, they know each other pretty well. But in the narrative method, we may bring in a piece of fiction or a poem or some music or art or even a, a fracture piece of architecture. And by decentering what usually is a bidirectional communication with this third object, this third element, it gets us out of ourself into talking about something else outside of us. And you know, within the realm of narrative psychology, they will talk about how the person isn't the problem. The problem is the problem. Well, I got to say, if I was a person with a problem, and I'm sure I have, 
it feels good that you're not judging me, not my identity, not who I am, but the situation. And so that's very helpful when we're working with people who are under high degrees of stress or if they have uh, self-identity issues, it becomes very helpful as a way to help them focus. Mm. That's, I mean, I, I love this. And to me, it really gets to the, uh, to the heart of, you know, this, this work with, with uh, narratives um, and storytelling is, is just, you know, we, we get, we, we are able to get to identity and we, and, and help people who are perhaps struggling with that. Um, and, and that just that framing of, you know, the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem um, can be, it's very empowering. Uh, and I've certainly seen that in action. Um, and, and I think it's a very helpful tool really for anyone. Um, and, and I would imagine, and I don't know, Derek, because, you know, at the moment, maybe you can speak to this, but, you know, there's a lot of people uh, walking around right now who are, certainly must be feeling like they're at a crossroads um, and where there's a lot of change and you, maybe you've been laid off, um, something's going on. And um, I, I wonder because of your own history of of change and evolution, right? Going from the corporate world to, to then this world that you're in, uh, having lived through that downsizing, uh, what are, what are your thoughts around, you know, the, what you've discovered um, through these narrative approaches and, you know, someone who's perhaps just learned that they lost their job and are kind of feeling like maybe it is this chaos narrative at the moment. And where do I go next? Um, I, I wonder what you're, what you're, when you see that in the headlines, what you think of. I'm definitely an optimist. And earlier I said, trying to keep a, a sense of humor or a sense of optimism about what can seem like it's just unsurmountable odds. Um, so that comes from within. That's intrinsic. But I realized when I left a corporate job that I no longer had HR or information technology support or a cafeteria. I had to take on multiple roles that otherwise had been taken on by a support staff. I think it may be more resilient to be able to have to make these connections uh, just to survive and to kind of move going forward. But I think that early grieving period was necessary. I left a place I'd gone to every day for 17 years. That's a that's a big loss. I acknowledged that. And then I talked to other people who were feeling something similar. I thought, okay, so I'm not alone. And then the reflection piece began. And I think that's the other piece of, of narrative that I appreciate so much is the ability to kind of slow my roll, pause, assess where I am realistically. And then where could I be? Where could you go? And I think being able to say, I am not a clinician, but I can influence the clinical space was a huge leap. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, all those years on the phone at H&R Block, all those years of homework, work with people in the most emotional states to communicate with one another, sort of served as stepping stones toward this whole narrative approach. So if somebody is feeling unmoored, you know, unsettled, unsure, I guarantee that you're, they're not alone. And that if they can find their, their tribe, people who are in a similar circumstance and start pooling ideas and energy. That's exactly what happened with narrative mind work. So a group of us realized that narrative medicine is you know pretty new, 20 years. This is pretty new for a major field. And even with each matriculating, with each matriculating class, it took some time to get 
going into business, whether it be medical or, or elsewhere. So we thought, okay, we're not the only people experiencing this. What if we created a hub or an online portal for people who worked in narrative to find one another, to work together on projects? And Jerome, from having worked with narrative, I knew to reach out to you with last year's health literacy project, but it was based on a relationship. It was not based on circumstance. And I wasn't churning through LinkedIn. And so I think if we can realize that the, you know, economic, the economic model has shifted radically from the safety and security of when I was growing up in the 80s, this incremental, you do this job, you get this promotion, you get this project, this promotion. That is not always the case anymore, which is daunting. It's scary, but it's also thrilling. And I will say that I call this my, my third chapter and you know the story continues. And so I hope that people see whatever circumstance they're in as a place to learn, to connect, to gather resources and to marshal the support so that wherever they choose or adapt to next, it's as exciting as where they were. Mm -hmm. This resonates because one of the reasons you're here is Jerome and I had earlier conversations where I was sharing some experience I had with clients where I've lived through notifications on both sides of the equation, both as an HR in the past and on the inside. Now, you know, constructing them and also being impacted. Technology just has changed and also our ability to see what is needed in a conversation or how we notify and how people are informed. I've seen a difference in many situations now where people are seeing um, manifesting this sentence of PTSD. And I'm not saying that lightly, not I lost my job and I'm depressed and I'm worried, but PTSD when I was taking intake and listening to people. So I think more than ever, we have to teach that you are portable. You're still your skills and your job, your title's gone in the house you were living in for all those years ago, but foundational things that anchor folks. And especially since we're working in virtual environments, like you're isolated a lot of times. So you're living and working in the same space. So I think the things you're describing is can I are so important to teach and to share and to appreciate just the fact that you found out when you were went through what you are that you're not alone. You're not the only one. And this is a normal morning healing process and a thing that you had to get through to get through it literally so thank you it's important we need to just blast this episode out to everybody there's going to be a lot of appreciative people that will be not happy that's not the right word but like relieved to see that this is something that's out there for them you know the movie everything everywhere all at once mm -hmm. was fascinating to me i saw it the same week that i was reading this book called subtract by Lady Klotz, which is about simplification and to me, that represents this multivalent approach of being able to hold two almost opposing elements at the same time. So this whole multivalent approach, you're kind of living this now as we zoom in from different cities, we're here together. And I know the session will be recorded, but it will never be recreated exactly like this again. Mm -hmm. So we can respect that and, and honor that. And with my students who maybe zooming in from other countries who have just come off a long shift in Singapore, we may have a Zoom together. And I'll just pause and say, you know, tell me about your day. Where are you right now? Show me something 
on your desk that is meaningful to you. And so we use story. It's just like a little, I won't say it an icebreaker. It's like a, mm -hmm. a, a mood setter of let's remember we're human. We're here together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's wonderful. And, and, you know, one of the, um, tough things about hosting a, a, a podcast like we do is that I have to pay attention to the time <laughs> and, uh, and I don't uh, help you too much either. I know. Like and I, I, <laughs> that's right. And I'm sorry to say that we're getting to the end, but there is one question that I want to, that I want to get to before we end, because we ask this of all of our guests um, and, and there, I'm sure there's elements uh, that we talked about that may be uh, in, in your answer uh, and that's okay. But the, the question is this, is there, could you tell us about an experience that you've had that has shaped who you are today, maybe continues to kind of inform how you see things, how you view the world? Okay, what comes to mind, uh, 2002, I had been sent to Australia for a month to do some training and the training had wrapped up. I had a weekend off and I was sitting on a North Queensland beach and I was by myself and the bonfire was dying down. There was just, just embers. And I was looking at the fire, looking at the fire, looking at these embers, kind of regretting that it was over and knowing that my, my trip had ended. I was, I was headed home the next day. And then I looked up and the sky was absolutely saturated with stars, almost like it was a smear of stars versus individual ones. And I, I said, yes. And I said, yes, to the stars. I said yes to the sky, I said yes to the ocean, to the beach. And it was a turning point because here I was in Australia. My family was back home in our city of, you know, 30,000 people. But we were coexisting. And so that notion of what's bigger, what, what's out there, what is possible, that has carried me through some pretty tough, dark times. And I hope that people can kind of carry that motivation forward, that sometimes not getting by is temporary, but necessary, but what's next, what's bigger, maybe just around the corner. Mm, beautiful. I love that image also. Um, and uh, yeah, great, great, great words uh, of hope for everyone. Um, and, uh, and, and I wonder, Derek, just to, to, uh, before we sign off here, um, is there anything that, uh, that you want to point people to uh, uh, in terms of resources or, or things to follow up on? So a few things. So if people are interested in narrative medicine sessions, there are free sessions that are offered through narrativemedicine.blog. Oh. So the Columbia University staff offers though those as a way to connect people through the narrative method. And if somebody has interest in health literacy, uh, S-A-Y-A-H.org uh, is the group that I serve on the board for that does New York health literacy trainings. And then right around the corner, again, is... Uh, narrativemindworks.com. We'll be launching that soon. And um, we have to connect with people who are in the narrative field to help find each other. Mm, I love it. Uh, all of this is yeah. very exciting. Yeah, I love that there's these uh, very practical things people can follow up on. And of course, all of these will be in the episode notes as well, and we'll have links there. Um, and uh, and if we think of anything else to add, we'll we'll do that between between now and the publishing of this uh, of this episode. Excellent. For now, though, uh, it, it's time for us to uh, to part ways. Uh, and I just uh, before we do that, I want to remind people uh, to go and subscribe to this podcast, Leadership Story Talks, wherever you find podcasts. Uh, you can also find previous episodes in our archive on our website, narrative.com. 
uh, slash podcast. And as we said at the top of the episode, we we also are running a, a workshop, an online workshop, one hour a week for four weeks, starting on February 15th. Uh, and that's really an opportunity for anyone who wants to explore these topics that we talked, a lot of these topics that we talked about today. How can you make a better connection with others, build relationships through storytelling, you know, expressing your values, your vision with a really compelling story? That's what this workshop is going to be about. Um, and finally, check out our YouTube page uh, because you'll also be able to, to see us as multidimensional people uh, like, like you see us uh, like we are now. Um, and so that's a, another great uh, resource. Jules, thank you. Yeah, it's it, this episode more than others just show the gift of listening and the fact it's training and experiencing in more than different ways. And it's not something to take for granted. It's a gift that we give to others when we can do it in the way mm -hmm. they need to be listened to. So yeah. Thank you very much for making time for us. Well, I'm grateful for the space and the time we offered today. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. For more information on the narrative listening and storytelling method and how it can help your business, go to narrative.com.